Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. I'm your host, Christopher Rose. Studies of Islamic science tend to follow one of several predictable tracks. They either examine the so-called golden age of Islamic studies production in 9th century Baghdad, they follow the relay race method, which tracks the transmission of knowledge from ancient Greece and Rome into Islamic languages and then back into Latin in order to kickstart the Renaissance, and nearly all of them have one major thing in common. They end sometime around 1600, and many of them assert that, a, that scientific knowledge and production fell by the wayside after that. The author of today's book, however, argues that that's not the whole picture. Justin Stearns, who is Associate Professor of Arab Crossroads Studies at New York University Abu Dhabi, argues in his new book, Revealed Sciences, the Natural Sciences in Islam and 17th Century Morocco, out now from Cambridge University Press, that in fact scientific knowledge did continue if you know where to look for it. Here's our interview. Justin Stearns, welcome to the New Books Network. Our Traditional first question uh, is about yourself. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your biography, where you're from, how you got started in academia, and what led you to become interested in this topic? Sure. Well, it's uh, it's fairly straightforward. I, I grew up uh, in the U.S. and abroad uh, in Switzerland. I went to the college in, in the States and ended up in Princeton doing a Ph.D. in Near Eastern Studies. Um, at the end of the 90s. And uh, that got me off into studying Arabic in various parts of the world, including, and that's relevant here, in Morocco in 1998-99. So that was the beginning of my kind of first uh, encounter with the, the Middle East, with Arabic, and also with, with Morocco, which has been a place that's been kind of the focus of much of my work, or the broader Islamic West, I should say, uh, since then. So, Okay, great. Um, so. I want to start off by asking you to talk a little bit more about this conundrum that you describe in the preface to your book, um, which is, as, as you explain, and I'm going to quote you at you, uh, the extent to which 19th to 21st century debates on the tension between modern science and religion on the one hand, and the marginal position of the Muslim world on the other, have distorted historians' understanding of Muslims writing about the natural sciences in the pre-modern world, end quote. So can you tell us a little bit more about this tension and how it led you in the direction of this project in particular? 
Sure. So I encountered this tension, I think, um, <clears throat> my first project, which was a comparative study of responses to the Black Death in Al-Andalus and uh, North Africa in the 14th, 15th centuries and beyond up until the 18th, 19th centuries. And what I became aware of is that the way in which historians talked about anything related to science or to medical issues was very much um, put through a rather Eurocentric uh, teleology of the development of science, where the Muslim world was chiefly important or interesting insofar as uh, things there paralleled what were happened in Europe or influenced what happened in Europe. And this was um, an attitude that was not just adopted by European historians of science or of the Middle East, but also by historians of the Middle East or historians from the Middle East looking at intellectual developments there. And so that's what made me begin to think that the broader intellectual developments um, taking place uh, from, say, the 13th to the 18th centuries were likely to be very poorly uh, understood. And specifically, anything related to the natural sciences was going to be, um, was going to be misunderstood. The subtitle of the book is... The Natural Sciences in Islam in 17th Century Morocco, which, of course, leads me to the question of, of why Morocco in particular? Um, and, and I realize that, you know, you, you have an academic background studying in Morocco, but uh, in particular, what, what are the, the intricacies or, or the idiosyncrasies that make Morocco an interesting case study? Yeah, it's, a, it's definitely it's a good question. I mean, Morocco is largely peripheral uh, to our standard narratives for how we talk about the early modern Middle East, or which is often focused on the three so-called gunpowder empires, right, of the Ottomans, the Safavids, and the Mughals. And here you have little Morocco out there in the far west with no direct tie to, to or n- not under the sovereignty of, of any of those three empires. Obviously, there's a lot of interaction with them. And so Morocco is particularly interesting, however, at this time period in the 17th century, because it is witness to a real sort of flowering of intellectual activity. And and that's been known now for, oh, I'd say three or four decades, It's just been framed in different ways. And and so when you look at, for example, a recent book, or one that influenced me a great deal in the writing of my own, of Khaled al-Ruayheb's book on sort of early modern Islamic and intellectual history, right? And, mm-hmm. and he, he shows very well how the central Arab lands are revivified and, and draw inspiration from these peripheral areas, one of which is, is Morocco. So Morocco, some interesting things seem to be going on in Morocco at that time period. Also, it's useful in part uh, to take a look at what's happening in it precisely because it is... Uh, known for its political instability at that very time. So the one dynasty, the Saidi dynasty, uh, ends at the beginning of the century, and the Alawite dynasty, which continues to rule Morocco until today, um, solidifies its control over the country and the region at the end of the century. And you're left with this period of, of, of political decentralization, of plague and epidemic disease, and just generally things are are hard. You ha- And you have uh, a mass wave of refugees as, as the Moriscos are expelled from Al-Andalus into North Africa and uh, arrives and uh, small city-states like Saleh on the coast set up as, as sort of as pirates and as privateers. Uh, so it, there's a lot going on at that time. And at the same time that all of this crazy political stuff is happening, you have a real burst of scholarship 
and and that just makes it fascinating to kind of it shows first of all that the that scholarship is not directly tied to political stability and it also shows that uh, when you look more closely that much of the scholarship that's being produced the books that are being produced are happening outside of urban areas and rural centers uh, associated often with sufi orders so, so these are zawiyas or zawaya and uh, and so I, that for all of those reasons morocco seems like really really interesting now there's another reason as well which is to say, and this is more in response to Eurocentric framings, namely that the 17th century is when sort of traditionalist unreconstructed uh, narratives of, of the scientific revolution have Europe really taking off, right? I mean, you've got Galileo, you've got, and then by the beginning, you've got Newton, you've got everything else going on. And so part of the, you know, the, the impetus for the project was to, to say, okay, so what's happening in the Muslim world then? And, and I, I chose Morocco for all the reasons, the aforementioned reasons, but also because we really lack the kind of nuanced grounding in our knowledge of what's going on in different parts of the Muslim world that can only be supplied by careful sort of case studies or micro histories of different regions. And so that's what I'm, I'm trying to do here. In, in particular, uh, in your first chapter, you, you discuss um, the Zawaya as, as an important site for knowledge uh, production, which was something that I'd never really thought about before because, you know, I, I think even with, you know, my own years of experience as well as, you know, actually having been to Morocco and visited a couple of, of, of Zawaya, that the idea that these would be places that fostered learning sort of in the same way as, you know, George Salaby's um, colleges way back in, in, in the Mashrik um, had done had never really occurred to me. So uh, can, can you tell us a little more about how that functioned? Sure. It's really, it's really fascinating. I mean, all of this was, was, I think, first put together in a nice synthetic narrative by the great Moroccan historian and editor Mohamed Haji in his sort of groundbreaking 1970s dissertation on in the intellectual history of the Saidi dynasty. But what we find is that in Morocco, um, without wanting to go back too far, at the beginning of the 16th century, we get an increasing number of Sufi um, lodges are founded in a large, both urban and also rural areas, which uh, become centers of learning in their own right and allow different parts of Morocco to really become independent in terms of a necessary um, density of scholars who are able to maintain in, uh, uh, intellectual networks outside of the famed cities of Fez and, and Marrakesh. And so the, the, all these these um, lodges get a lot of sponsorship, in part from from the the ruling dynasty, the Saidis themselves, but they also tap into trade networks. So one of the things that happens at the end of the 16th century is Morocco, uh, under Ahmed al-Mansur, the, the last and the, the greatest of the Saidi rulers, invades West Africa, did on to Timbuktu. And in the process... The, the trade routes get uh, shifted from Sijil Masa for further west to the to Tam, Tamgrut. And these trade routes with the, the gold, the slaves, uh, the commodities that they bring with them um, are immensely beneficial to some of these rural um, rural lodges, such as the, the, the Nasiriya Lodge in Tamgrut, which is on the edge of the Sahara. And they become, you know, quite wealthy and ability uh, able to sustain themselves uh, independently of of any other kind of political stability. And that goes to the benefit of, of a lot of Morocco in the 17th century when the state collapses. So we find that 
in the middle of the 17th century, it is a Sufi lodge in the Middle Atlas, the Dilet Lodge, which is, a, I guess, a little bit um, you know, south of Sefru or south of Fez, um, which for r- roughly three to four decades is the single most important political center as well as a center of learning. So many of the scholars that I talk about in my book that's where they they meet, they study. The main guy, uh, Al Hassan Al Yusi, whom I'm uh, very attached to, uh, spends uh, the most productive years of his life in this rural Zawiya, which doesn't exist anymore because the Alawites, after they come to power, they raise it into the ground. Um, but it, nonetheless, it's it's would have been this uh, really affluent, rich center of learning. So this association of Sufi lodges with not with uh, knowledge production um, kind of goes hand in hand with what I think has been a, a long standing uh, trope, if not misunderstanding, um, about the way that scientific, in particular natural science scholarship, was conducted within the broader realm of of religious science or, or what is often considered to be. Uh, uh, re- religiously oriented uh, scholarship. Um, and this is something that you talk about in, in your second chapter. Um, so can you sort of walk us through the relationship between these various subfields? Uh, because part of your argument is that the long sort of uh, understood or, 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 or pre-existing, uh, sorry, the longstanding stereotype that scientific research sort of fell by the wayside during this period is, is not accurate. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if, if you, if you could sort of shed some light on, on, on that for us. Sure. So just, if we go back to, I don't know, say uh, 40 years ago or so to Moctesi's under uh, study of the, of the madrasa system and the way in which learning becomes institutionalized. Um, I think it's understood by many people and thanks to the, the great, um, studies that have been done by, by Chamberlain and Berkey and others on, on, on teaching and learning that uh, while the madrasa became increasingly important, other forms of transmission of knowledge continued to exist, personal ones, that there were other places of tra- knowledge transmission in, in hospitals and so forth. But it's really, there is a sea change, for me at least, that came with the work of Sonia Brentias and other people who began pointing out that the madrasa actually did include uh, Pakya Makdasi, uh, the transmission of knowledge of the natural sciences and other forms of knowledge, um, which were not directly what we might call religious. So the book tries to make a couple of interventions here. First, it goes through a kind of a quantitative overview of biographical dictionaries and looks at the subjects that were studied by scholars of the period and in which they wrote works uh, on the natural sciences. And under natural sciences, we're generally talking here uh, in part, some of the mathematical sciences like astronomy, um, but also astrology, which is usually classified under the natural sciences, and then, of course, medicine and a bunch of the uh, the occult sciences, or what we would which we would refer to as occult sciences, including uh, letterism and uh, and alchemy, and um, all of those we find people reading and teaching them in these. Um, you know, in both urban areas and in the, the madrasas, but also in the Zawaya that I was talking about, these these Sufi lodges. So that's one thing is simply to reiterate and say, no, actually the curriculum was much more varied than we thought. And there are institutionalized places, forms of, of teaching and transmission of knowledge, which included the natural sciences. 
Um, but there's another broader point that the book tries to make that leads back to its actual title, and that goes to this notion of all sciences which benefit the Muslim community being revealed or religiously licit sciences, alum shara'iyah. And, mm-hmm. and that's the point that uh, Hassan al-Yusi, who's probably the most famous uh, Moroccan scholar of the, the 17th century, ultimately, that he makes in, in his um, massive work, the uh, Al-Qanun, which is the end of his life. And he goes over and does a, a classification of the sciences. And he also just says, you know what, this whole religious or the, the binaries that we traditionally have had, the ulum al-Naqliya and the ulum al-Aqliya, right, the the transmitted religious sciences and the rational natural sciences; these binaries are are uh, uh, fallacious. They don't they don't work. At the end of the day, all sciences that benefit the Muslim community are revealed sciences, and mm-hmm. and so that's the one of the interventions. He wasn't alone in this. I mean, other people picked up on this and followed him in this for at least the next hundred two hundred years after that. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm trying. I am trying to, to challenge, uh, of course, building always standing on the shoulders of giants, on on the scholarship before me, but but trying to to rewrite our narrative and to say that actually no, the rational natural sciences were widely studied. Um, now numerically, it might not sound that way. We're talking about roughly nine uh, percent, seven to nine percent uh, of the scholars of the period whose lives are recorded in these biographical dictionaries studied one or more of these sciences. But when you consider the the number of people involved in the the broader um, uh, social networks, that's that's a, a rather significant number. And we know of at least 120 works in the natural sciences composed in Morocco in this long 17th century. So it's it's substantial, and it does not uh, is not explainable by the the previous master narratives that we have for the period. Uh, just out of my own historian's curiosity, uh, since you mentioned that one of the main sites of knowledge production ha- was raised by the, the Alawite dynasty, uh, where, what, what sorts of sources uh, did you put, did you use to compile this project and, and, and where did you find them? So a lot of it, um, well, on the one hand, a lot of the project simply is based on materials which have already been published, but uh or have not been been read or have been read differently or framed differently in part because of this sort of classic teleology of science but a lot of them also are still in manuscript and so for the the book i had i guess probably the most dramatic moment i had is when i i made a trip up to the the high atlas to the hamzia ayashia zawiya which was a, a kind of a an offshoot of the dila zawiya in the 17th century and this guy ayashi went up there and he founded his own lodge and and it was a substantial, I mean, it's, it's only now being coming slowly incorporated into the Moroccan Al-Qaf administration, into the sort of the mm-hmm. Ministry of Pious Endowments. And so it's still there. It hasn't, you know, what happened to many of these places is that their manuscripts were shipped off to Rabat and then they were, they were brought into the National Library. But there's, they still have like some 5,000 volumes and it's just recently been re-cataloged. I think I'm getting that number right. And so it, it's quite extraordinary. You come into the descendants of the original, um, the the folks who ran the Zawiya are still still there. They're living a largely, uh, uh, you know, goat and sheep herding, um, and it's no longer a center of knowledge. But they have the books still, and they maintain and take care of them. And and now there's some state 
um, sort of in, in money coming in to try to, to set up and to solidify and to protect this, this, this collection. And so that, that I think was probably, I, I took, I was able to take uh, pictures of numerous manuscripts there, uh, many of whom, which I was able to bring into the book project. And I did the same down with the, uh, and Tamgrut, although most of its holdings are actually, have been, have been, or many of its holdings were taken to the National Library. Um, so there's, yeah, otherwise I, I also worked, of course, with the National and the Royal Libraries in Rabat. So one of the things that you do in your third chapter then is you, you demonstrate how this scientific production discovery discourse fits into what is probably the larger and better studied field of jurisprudence, um, in particular by looking at the uh, debate over the use of, of, of tobacco. Um, so can you talk about the interplay between this sort of what we would now call the division between the natural sciences and the religious sciences, um, even though it wouldn't have been understood at the time, and how these things all fit together? So, yeah, the, I, if, if the broader argument of the book is that this difference, distinction between natural and religious sciences is porous, and that there's actually um, a lot of inter pollination, if you so will, between these two two branches, insofar as, you know, as of course, if you follow Alusi's definition narrowly, there can't be any differentiation because they're they're the same. Um, they're the same category. He collapses them into to another. But I think what I was trying to do in the book was to to make the argument in a number of ways. So if I tell my audience, okay, let's take a look at this classification of knowledge, you see what Alusi's saying the natural and the religious sciences are not distinct. In fact, they're, 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 they fall into the same category, kind of an instrumentalist beneficial category. And I expect my audience will say, oh, oh, that's interesting. And then if I say, hey, and you know what? It looks like, you know, more, more or less 10% of all scholars in the 17th century studied one or more of these sciences. And, and let's look at their personal scholarly autobiographies and see how they talk about them. And people would kind of go, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's kind of interesting. We're getting this a little bit more. And then I said, okay, let's look at one of the most hegemonic religious discourses that exists in the Muslim world, Islamic law. And let's mm-hmm. look at the way in which these sciences, specifically medicine, but also astronomy, get pulled in and discussed in these materials, then we'll really kind of get a sense of how this plays out in the nitty gritty. Now, there has been long a kind of a, a danger, which has recently, I think, been well challenged by Thomas Bauer, Shahab Ahmed, and others of, you know, a, a danger of conflating uh, Islam with Islamic law or of turning it into a religion of law and so forth. And so I'm wary of trying to, to make too much of these, these legal sources, but the glimpses they give us of social history of, is, is too tempting not to take advantage of. And so the third chapter does, in fact, take it as an overview of three different collections of legal opinions with materials that span almost a thousand years, because these these collections often contain opinions from earlier periods, and then focuses specifically on a, a massive legal a debate of the 17th century, the so-called Great Tobacco Debate, about the licitness of being able to smoke or not, um, which, of course, is just a fascinating debate. For purpose of my book, what's striking about it and the argument that I make is that uh, knowledge of the body and the embodied nature of the experience of smoking becomes integral 
to this debate and to and, and make a, a, the broader argument into Islamic law more generally. And that because of that, um, we can see how deeply implicated the natural sciences, and in this case specifically medicine, are in these other nominally religious sciences, such as Islamic law. You can't do Islamic law without bringing medical knowledge into the question of whether, for example, tobacco is an intoxicant, um, whether it is, you know, uh, whether it just makes dulls, dulls the senses, whether it dulls the mind, but not the body or the body, not the mind. All of these types of questions, it's parallels with the smoking of hashish, which had been debated in previous centuries, cannot be resolved unless you bring medical knowledge into it. And so we see all these jurists either invoking the authority of famous doctors or even more interesting, appropriating the authority of the discourse of medicine in order to do law. And mm-hmm. that's what I, I found so so really striking in, 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 in that chapter and tried to lead the reader through some of the uh, sort of the minute details of some of those debates, which, which are carried out by some of the most influential and important scholars of the period, including Ahmed Baba of Timbukti, this famed uh, West African scholar from Timbuktu who spends uh, a good 15 years of his life in in Morocco and, and, and intervenes uh, substantially in this debate about whether one can smoke or not. I think one of the things I also found fascinating, and this is a complete aside, is that tobacco appears to have been introduced to Morocco through uh, the sub-Saharan trade. I, I would have always assumed it had come in from the Atlantic, but... Uh... Well, I think it did, but I think it came into West Africa, right? And then made its way through these trading routes from West Africa north into Morocco. But yeah, no, I was equally a little baffled about that. I haven't been able to track down you know, like the exact moment on which it was it made its way in there. But yes, it it, it, it uh, there's these great stories about it being brought by these trains of uh, of men coming up across the Sahara and. Uh, with in one case at least an elephant with them, and 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 then being being known as the guys who brought the tobacco, right, right, um, and of course it also reminded me of the of the the sort of uh, the similar debate over coffee about a century earlier, which I think was finally settled when the the Ottoman Sultan decided that having a bunch of janissaries uh, going through caffeine withdrawal was a bad idea. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the sort of similar idea about what constitutes an intoxicant and the intoxication of the mind. It, it's, it's all just it's very fascinating the way you have it. You have it laid out there. You, you sort of wrap up by looking at, at, at the production of, of other scientific texts. But I, I sort of wanted to, to, to branch out um, and sort of, of get in, into this uh, broader conversation that, that or theme that runs through the entire book, which is. Um, how thinking outside of of these traditional categories, um, because it is, and again, as you you just mentioned, you 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 are at pains to try to avoid equating Islam with law, um, but also how it it helps us get out of this this if I can borrow a phrase from my own advisor, ontological trap that so many debates about science and religion seem to fall into. In which case these these are at opposites and and cannot coexist in the same sphere. Yeah, it's interesting that people would still be able to posit that. In many ways, you know, the 
as I understand it, at least the the under the notion that there is an essentialized conflict between this thing called science and these thing called religion, um, it, it's hard to find it really solidified before the end of the nineteenth century, and it happens within a very much within a kind of a Protestant discourse of looking and, and and critiquing the influence of the church on European intellectual development, and then solidifies in the beginning of the 20th century with this narrative of a scientific revolution and that, you know, plays into this broader narrative of European enlightenment and move towards secularization and all this and all of those master narratives, which come out of this often very Anglo Protestant context, then get flipped and laid over onto, um, Islam, at the same time that you have these discussions among Salafis and Muslim reformers at the end of the 19th century who are arguing that their own faith has been um, you know, corrupted by all of the uh, scholarship which, is, which has been written since the period of the pious ancestors back from the early, early period of Islam. And so you find them also going through and critiquing and, and not being that interested in much of the intellectual production of the period that, that I'm, I'm writing about here. Um, and they also begin the posit that there is a real religion and that they, they can get, you know, that science is compatible with it, but their notion of science then is very much leans on the notions that they're looking at from the Europeans, which they're trying to reclaim and their own kind of apologetic, but also triumphalist narrative. And so, those are the types of ways that we guess these two, it becomes possible to think of science and religion as two distinct things, because it's not, not really clear or at all from the materials of, of the, the 17th uh, century of the period that I'm, I'm looking at. And in fact, I think it's done a real harm to the, the broader understanding that we have and of, of Islamic intellectual history. Strikingly, European historians of science looking at the 16th to the 18th centuries have not have been much have had an ability to establish much more nuanced types of narratives here, um, and and we're playing a little bit catch up because uh, we have different stakes in the game. Not only is our source material not as well developed or edited, but also there has been. Um, there have been these historiographical imperatives to produce knowledge which shows the relevance of the Muslim world to a specific understanding of a teleology that leads towards the rise of modern science in Europe. And when you look mm-hmm. at other developments, when you look at other developments, such as the ones that I'm looking at that don't contribute to that, um, they were written off insofar as they were studied. They, for a long time, they were written off as pseudoscience, as um, obscurationist um, esotericism and so forth. You know, uh, th- this reminds me, and, and your, since your first book was also uh, on on ideas of medicine, uh, you, you'll, I'm, I'm sure you'll, you'll pick up what I'm saying here. But is um, in in a number of the works on on Islamic medicine, the, there is this reproduction of a, of a narrative of fatalism. Um, you know that there's there's this questionable hadith about the the person who dies of plague being granted a martyr's. Uh, welcome in, into paradise, and um, and in all of these books, there's always this this um, this reference to folk religions. It's called folk practice, where there's you know it's, oh they'll have these little talismans or things that are supposed to ward off illness, but they don't take any real steps. 
as if in the 15th century there were any real steps that one could take to prevent dying from bubonic plague if you contracted it. And I've always found this to be just a very modern spin that doesn't really explain how someone of that era would have understood the way that science or preventative medicine worked. And and you, uh, in, in the book, uh, you have these little uh, excursus sections between the chapters that, um, you know, they're only three or four pages. And so I, I had to prevent myself from, from focusing solely on those when I, when I was preparing questions. But the one in particular um, that the, I, I found in fascinating was, was your sort of use of Kuhn uh, and, and, and uh, Thomas Kuhn and, and, and the history of science in Islamicate societies, which again, goes to this idea that anything that isn't science now um, is discounted, even though in the 16th and 17th century, it was considered scientific. So it's so hard. I mean, Kuhn is the right person to invoke because stuck in our paradigm as we are, the language that we use is at times makes it difficult to talk about these things. But this was something which really informed my entire approach to the book. Um, and in thinking about it, is that I'm largely trying to chronicle a type of intellectual engagement and dynamism, which becomes irrelevant, not only to Western Orientalists later on who are looking for specific types of production, but also to many Moroccans and many people in the Middle East who are not interested in types of intellectual production that do not show them being able to partake of or having contributed to immediately uh, what they consider science today, right? Of course, because capitalist science, what is scientific, did not exist in the 17th century. These different mm-hmm. sciences existed, these different forms and bodies of knowledge which were being invoked. And what Kuhn does, and what I think we can do, now I don't think it's a, I'm not trying to sort of take Kuhn and to coin a phrase, uh, take him as a paradigm and to impose, impose it rather slavishly on the material. What I'm trying to do there is that Kuhn really lays out this metaphor, the one that he takes again from Darwin of saying, well, what if we think of scientific knowledge not advancing in some kind of um, curve that, that moves asymptotically towards truth? But what if we think of it as a branching tree, which is sort of the, the arms of which are evolving in response to their local circumstances and needs and don't move towards any one ultimate true insight into the nature of reality, right? I mean, this was an image which, of course, gave rise to a tremendous amount of debate, and some people called, uh, would would fault Kuhn for becoming too, what they thought was relativistic. But for the purposes here of doing intellectual history and trying to understand this production and its relationship to the society in which it it emerged, yes, absolutely. The people who are doing uh, who are making talismans as and and who are also writing on the life of the prophet and writing introductory work on um, astronomy. I'm thinking here of uh, uh, Saida Mariti, one of the teachers of Alusi and one of the principal figures in the in the that fourth chapter you're talking about. He he talks about using in his own scholarly autobiography of using a, sort of occult methods to to ward off evil and to um, achieve various goals. And, and it has various kinds of talismans and also um, magical squares that he, that he mm-hmm. uses. And, and all of that is considered 
by you know many of his contemporaries, if not the vast majority. These are and this is not a, a elite popular distinction. These are the elite of the elite uh, in terms of scholars who are producing this material. And it, of course, uh, we can assume or we can posit that a lot of it would have been equally believed in by those who weren't able to, to do the writing of these treatises themselves. This is what's, what is taken to be authoritative forms of knowledge about the natural world and the ways in which it can be um, you know, manipulated. It's what I, I also look at with the, the medical work of this guy uh, uh, from down south next to Tamgrut Asalahi al-Dara'i, who writes this massive commentary on a memnonic medical poem that he also authors al uh, and you know he's he's bringing in all sorts of things in, in terms of uh, the occult knowledge about the properties of different substances um, that seems to what would have been considered cutting edge at the time or at least authoritative in, in, in its form and we need to understand that not as pseudoscience or um, derivative, but as, as as forms of knowledge that were immensely productive and meaningful to the societies in which they were produced. In general, you, you and you've mentioned this a few times that you're really trying to intervene here in in the field writ large uh, of how we we look at pre modern scientific production um, and to sort of reshape the way that we as historians approach this material. Uh, and and to take it more on on the terms in which it was produced rather than the terms that we would impose um, from from our vantage point of today. Um, so can can you can you talk a little bit more about that uh, directly? I would say rather than than uh, trying to do so through the through the framework that you've established here, um, is, is to to what you see as as the broader conversation within the field uh, into which you're making an intervention. So I think it's safe to say that the the history of science in Islamic aid societies is at a bit of a an impasse in, in 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 some ways. Part of that is an institutional materialist impasse. We don't have many graduate programs anymore in which people are trained. Some of the the great scholars of uh, a generation just a little bit before me and the one before that, um, your you know. Ais Abras, your um, George Salibas, Gamiz um, Rajab, Rushdi Rashid, all all these these Sonia, well Sonia Brentes for that matter. I mean these these mm-hmm. folks, um, they they were trained at a time in part where there were graduate programs that were set up to be able to give them that necessary training, and those programs we've we've lost uh, some of those programs. So those programs were also focused on the rather technical knowledge of how to actually understand often, uh, not always, but most often astronomy and various astronomical. You had to really understand the mathematics and the background of the technical side of these skills. Also for the history of mathematics, this was the case. And then the folks who specialized in that would move outwards and uh, would be able to talk more about the, um, you know, the cultural, the theological, the historical context. And you got, you have amazing historians like Robert Morrison, for example, and uh, Nahian Fancy are two good examples. Uh, Miguel Fontana as well. I mean, people were able to do that. So I'm getting, to, I'm getting, I'm getting to your, your question here. Um, but we also have now a whole set of other people who are approaching the history of science from a variety of other angles. And one of that is folks like, like myself, who was not trained in the, that discipline per se, who are interested in a broader cultural history 
of the role the natural sciences and the exact sciences play in Islamic societies. In that move, with it has come also a renewed focus on uh, the esoteric and the occult. And so one scholar whom I draw upon in the book and whose work, I think, on especially on, on sort of Timur and Iran and so forth, uh, Ma- Ma- Melvin Kushki's work has been very influential in, in my thinking is it shows really, and also Noah Gardner on Egypt, has really shown that um, the esoteric was at the heart of these uh, many of these scholarly circles, the study of the occult sciences was mainstream. Many of these figures were widely respected and read. And that individual statements by people like Ibn Khaldun, uh, you know, amazing scholar that he was, um, should not be taken, or, or criticisms should not be taken as representative of, of the period in general. So there's that, right? And I feel like what I'm trying to do is to, to enter and to complement that discussion but there's a methodological point to be made here as well, and that is that for far too long, we have written the history of the sciences in the pre-modern period on the basis of narratives that use as evidence individual figures from one century and the next, and we make broad assumptions about what happens in between, say, the 11th and the 13th, or 13th and the 15th. We just haven't had the, the scholarly manpower to do a history of the natural sciences, say, and I don't know, Algeria between... 1250 and 1300, and to have something like that done for each part of the broader Muslim world. And so we end up with generalizations that that simply don't fit the evidence. And I guess that's uh, something else that I should briefly address. The evidence, we just continue to have tens of thousands of manuscripts. I mean, in Morocco alone, cataloged, simply manuscripts that are cataloged and in the process of being cataloged, we probably have close to 100,000 manuscripts, the vast majority of which were produced after the 15th, 16th century, and the vast majority of which have not been edited or studied, much less printed. And so we are making generalizations on source material that is largely still kind of unknown. And I'm not positing with that, that we're going to discover some kind of parallel Islamic enlightenment or anything like that. But we certainly don't have the kind of fine-grained understanding of events in these different locations from across from North Africa, across to to India, to West Africa, um, that we would need in order to be able to do a truly responsible intellectual history. And I think what I'm trying to do in, in revealed sciences is to say, hey, here's one case study for one part of the early modern Muslim world. Now, let's have some people do other case studies of other parts. And once that's done, then we can start making meaningful generalizations about an intellectual history that largely is still represented in, in by these broad sweeping generalizations that aren't resting on very much. How much of that do you think is and you you touch on this in your preface uh is is sort of a response a defensive response if you will to sort of eurocentric critiques of the islamic past as being either the sort of relay method in which it received knowledge from greece rome kind of fiddled with it then passed it back um or simply not productive I, I think there's a lot of that. Um, but at the same time, I, I just, I'll, I'll stress that that narrative is also is both Eurocentric, 
but it's also one which emerges from and is adopted by many people in the Muslim world as mm-hmm. they because it allows them in part to argue, this is the apologetics of it, that at one point the Muslim world was the center of intellectual production and that whatever Europe has, it got from that center of intellectual production and that therefore it should actually come back to the Muslim world or be credited to it, right? I mean, this is the kind of narrative that you get from watching the basic outline of many of the the thousand and one inventions exhibitions or the variations mm-hmm. thereof that have come into being. And I understand the the general impulse of wanting to say, hey, wait, look, actually the Muslim world, which you now look down upon you being, quote unquote, the West, was a hub of intellectual activity and importance back in the day. But in the process of, of, of reiterating this, this narrative and of trying to stress the importance of say, Abbasid Baghdad in the ninth century, uh, um, amongst many other things, is that it also, it freezes the transmission of knowledge to the Muslim, you know, appropriation and naturalization, if you want, of, of say, Greek, Syriac, Indian um, knowledge. And, and it doesn't sort of look at it as a development that, you know, extended before and extended after. But also, and perhaps more perniciously, it discourages people in the Middle East today from actually studying the intellectual developments that took place after uh, the translation of Arabic texts into Latin. And, and, and so it's, it's, a, it's a problem. We have to get, get beyond this, get beyond both the, the infamous uh, decline narratives, which still you know, are being pervaded by many popular uh, surveys, and uh, but also get get beyond the kind of golden age of Islam narratives, which ultimately hide more than they reveal. So our, our traditional final question is, uh, what are you working on now? What's what's next for you? So what, parallel to writing this book, which took me about a decade, all told, um, I've been translating this uh, this book by Al-Yusi, one of the main protagonists of the book, called the Muhadarat, which is the, the discourses. And the first volume of that was published last year in the Library of Arabic Literature series, which is a wonderful series because it gives these facing uh, English-Arabic uh, editions that uh, are just wonderful to use. And the, the English language version of that is coming out next month, so it will be a nice little paperback that will be easy to use in class. Um, but there is a second volume to it, and so I am still busily trying to translate that. And in the discourses, is a wonderful collection of short essays that UC wrote at the end of his life on all these different subjects. And it gives not only a slice of life of what was going on in Morocco, but also what kinds of things an, an educated, uh, intelligent, ambitious uh, scholar of the time might be have been interested in. So that's happening. And then there are some spin-off projects from the, uh, the book that are uh, about to be to be published. Uh, Margiti has a treatise against sorcery with lots of wonderful magical squares that will be coming out next month. And then, and, uh, and so there's that. Um, more broadly, I've begun a project with the help of some students here at uh, NYU Abu Dhabi of trying to create a digital database of the, of the sort of cataloged Moroccan manuscripts. That is going to be a multi-year project in a rather substantive one but it, uh, it it draws on the example of the the West African manuscript database that is now run by Bruce Hall out of Berkeley, which would one day I think really give us a chance if we could create more of these types of synthetic searchable databases. It will be a godsend for uh, future generations of researchers. I would hope 
Um, and precisely because Moroccan scholars have really laid the groundwork here of continuing to go through their archives, both the national ones, the Royal Library, and of these individual private libraries and local lodges, the Zawaya, uh, we're getting a much better understanding through these recatalog, uh, catalog, the new catalogs that they're producing of the intellectual history of, of Morocco. But because it's not in one searchable database, its its use is still limited. So I guess that's one of the major projects that I'm t- intending to work on in the next, uh, well, hopefully not quite decade, but it will take a while to get that to, to be up and running. Yeah, but it, it'll be such a, a phenomenal tool, um, especially considering uh, how difficult it can be to to find archival holdings in a good swath of the Arab world. Uh, the yes, uh, It absolutely. really will be quite invaluable. Yeah. All right. Revealed Sciences, The Natural Sciences and Islam in 17th Century Morocco by Justin Stearns is out in 2021 from Cambridge University Press. Justin, thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure, Chris.